Dotnet Rocks episode 787 with guest Michael Height. Recorded live Thursday, July 5th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. It's summertime here in the uh, United States of America. I'm in the East Coast, and Richard's in Vancouver, British Columbia. What's up, my friend? It's beautiful here, too, my friend. What can I tell you? I, I actually borrowed a motorcycle from a friend of mine. I've been riding the motorcycle a bit. You had that motorcycle, Jones, when you were younger, didn't you? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've realized is if you had a motorcycle when you were in your 20s, when you're in your 40s, you don't really need one anymore. If you never had a motorcycle in your 20s, then you want one in your 40s. Yeah, the only definitely. reason I have driving one right now is that I have some friends who never had them in their 20s who are now riding them. are like, we want you to go riding with us. I'm like, okay. Yeah. But I really don't need to own a motorcycle anymore. But I do have a good friend with a very nice bike, a big old Honda 1300, big cruising bike, who's off to, to Europe for the summer. And he said, would you like, why don't you just take care of my bike? You do the tune up, you keep it healthy. You know, I, I like it to be ridden for the summer. So I've taken out a couple of times. I'll ride it a bit more. It's, it's good fun. Last week, the son of a friend of Kelly's, uh, got into an accident on a motorcycle, wasn't wearing a helmet, hit a car, went flying on the road, on the highway, into another car, had to have his leg amputated. Oh, man. Well, he's made to survive without a helmet. Always wear a helmet, kids. Yeah, you live longer. They call them donor cycles for a reason. And leathers aren't just for the look. It's to protect your skin, so that's a good idea, too. Yeah, I've had enough road burn from that. Yeah. All right. Well, enough depressing stuff. Let's get into something happy, like Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, what do you got? You're going to like this one, Richard, I think, because we're talking about the Task Parallel Library today, and I went looking for some good blog posts, and here's a guy who talks about exception handling with TPL-based WCF services. Ooh, cool. So this is Jeffrey Jude uh, from March 2012, and if you go to tinyurl.com slash TPLWCF, you know, we, we talked a little bit with Stephen Taub about the, the challenges around exception handling when you're going parallel mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and add WCF into the mix and it gets even weirder. So yeah, I was just thinking that that's a lot of moving parts right there. Right. But he's got, uh, he's got some good, uh, a good solution for it. So check it out. That's uh, tinyurl.com slash TPLWCF. And the link will be on the site. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a message from show 777, which, if you recall, my friend, because I know you memorize all of these, was our face-to-face chat at NDC with Venkat Subramaniam. That was awesome. Which the first time I'd met him in person, Me by too. the way. Me Talked too. to him a bunch of times. And he is so enthusiastic about some of the hardest subjects. But you know, when I think of Venkat, the word enthusiasm is the word that comes to mind. You, oh, you nailed it here. Yeah. He yeah. is really, really excited, and uh, and it's very infectious. And that's what Mike Henderson said as well on the on the website. He said, I just finished listening to show 777, and for me, it nicely pulled together topics from some recent shows. Venkat's remarks about learning new languages really hit the mark. A couple of years ago, I started dabbling in F-sharp by going through the Euler project problems using the language. Although I have yet to do a production project in F-sharp, the experience has made me better at my primary programming activities, writing C-sharp and SQL. 
which, you know, SQL deep down is a functional language. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking in a functional way helped me out of some problem-solving ruts. Then a few weeks back, I listened with interest about the goodness. That's CoffeeScript. That's the show we did with Rob Connery. Yep. Uh, learning CoffeeScript and seeing how it compiles to JavaScript had me rethinking how to use JavaScript. Other recent shows on NoSQL databases also refresh my thinking about the need to create nicely normalized tables with referential integrity. So many thanks. Keep those languages coming. And that's from Mike Henderson from Traverse City, Michigan. Yeah. It was Mike, great. I love that you're dabbling, that you're playing in these other languages, that you use the Euler project to exercise it. Like, that's the way to go. I, what, how, how much cooler can it be that you're, you know, you're being a real hobbyist still? Even Euler though it's is your job, you enjoy trying new things and how it benefits your work as a whole. That to me is like real practice. You know, you know, in, we were talking about Venkat. Uh, what I love about it is when he really gets excited, he really rolls his R's. And that's, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that's old school excitement right there, man. That is old school. Oh, too funny. Yeah. Uh, so, Mike, thanks so much for your comment. We're going to keep those shows coming. And I'd like to send you a .NET Rocks mug. So I'll get your mailing address. We'll get it out to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the site at .NET Rocks.com. And before we get started here, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore training courses authored by industry experts, 12 to 15 new courses every month, a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes of access to their library. They have a wide range of developer training courses, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, anything Microsoft, including complete coverage of Windows 8 and .NET 4.5. Try it today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. All right, and with that, let me introduce our guest. Michael Height is a .NET XAML and iOS polyglot that loves playing with new things and making cool and innovative stuff. He's also a Mac junkie and principal technologist for SunGuard Global Services in New York City in their advanced technologies practice, and he works extensively with SunGuard's energy and financial customers. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Hi, Kyle Richard. Great to be on the show. Yeah, great to have you. I was just reading your bio off of your blog, 42spikes.com. 42, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is in spiking new technology. I love your uh, Hitchhiker's Guide reference there, of course. It's a great blog. Thank you. What, um, what are, we're talking about uh, parallelism today, concurrency. Yeah, and uh, PPL uh, data flow library. Yeah. So the TPL Dataflow Library, we have a, a link to that at uh, Dev Labs. Tell us about it. The TPL Dataflow Library is a, a new library coming out in, in .NET 4.5, which helps you to build parallelized applications. Uh, it builds upon, you know, the threading libraries, TPL itself, and also a lot of the async and wait constructs to help you build very robust, parallelized applications with a lot of times not even have to worry about, you know, the implementations of tasks and and all the kind of concurrent data access and really kind of relieves you from, you know, a lot of that kind of burden. And I'll be honest, I think it's one of the, one of the coolest things that's come around in quite a, quite a long time and one of the most useful things in building different types of applications. And I, I build a lot of things like uh, trading desktops which need very high-performance UIs. And, you know, to be honest, I just, I've used this stuff, this library inside of those applications uh, for 
you know, a few months. It's still uh, kind of in uh, the four five dot net realm where it's not commercially released yet. But it's got a lot of uh, Genesis back in the Microsoft Robotics Studio CCR got, uh, mm-hmm. uh, concurrency and coordination runtime, which a lot of the concepts were taken out of. Which interesting, I'm working with some customers. Data, I've actually worked with customers who built out entire desktops on, let's say, CCR, and can handle hundreds of thousands of messages per second into the UI. But yet, there's not a single thread or lock statement or any type of anything like that inside of the application. So this really kind of lets you go about thinking a different way about putting your your, your uh, multi-threaded applications together. One would argue that the reason you didn't have problems that you were able to go that fast is because you didn't have any threads or locks. Hmm. So what we're talking about here is is a is a library that uses the the TPL that adds some higher level constructs so that uh, so that you can you don't have to write as much code around it. Is that what we're basically talking about? Sort of like a pattern library. Yeah, in a way, there's a lot of patterns. There's some patterns implemented inside of the TPF, as I think a lot of people kind of call it. Uh, but there's patterns still in software that you build around the stuff that's inside of the library itself. So, I mean, one of the ways I like to think about it is that, you know, the TDF doesn't assume threading or really that much of uh, the task parallel library at all. It's giving you a means of describing flow of data from inputs through transformations to more blocks to go on and and continue on down the line because a lot of times what you're doing and you probably everyone's probably seen this in their apps is you know you're getting data in off of backend systems and I need to transform that and I need to convert it into say a view model or a model and then bind it and do all these different steps and you end up coding all of these threads that are chained together and the like and and it's, you know you always end up shooting yourself in the foot so. What, what this gives you is a bunch of constructs so that you can just describe those types of uh, sequences of processing more or less declaratively in the language and, and let, you know, the, the library handle uh, the sequencing and coordination of all of these events and whether you use tasks or threads or whatever. Well, you know, it's... it's all up to itself. I'm wondering how this, I'm trying to visualize how this works because I've got blocks of code that need to happen at certain times, um, you know, using the async await keyword constructs, uh, keywords really helps in that sense. And I can understand that. But if I've got this sort of high level pipeline, it almost sounds like a pipeline. Are there uh, a sort of event handlers that uh, you, where you put your code that needs to execute at certain times or how does that exactly work? Yeah, exactly. That's what going on. The TDF has what's referred to in it is is blocks. And basically, they call them data flow blocks. And it's basically an interface that gets implemented. And they provide some canned implementations where you say, "I want this type of data flow block. When data is available, uh, have this block." call this piece of code that I supply. Basically, you give it a delegate lambda function or something like that. And they have a bunch of different canned uh, blocks in there. Like uh, they have uh, one of the basic ones is uh, they call it an action block, 
which pretty much just says uh, when a message arrives in a TDF with this signature data type, call this piece of code. And then, so what you end up doing is say you create it like a, an action block event. You can do what's known as a post to that. You can post an int to that. The action block will put that in a queue that it implements itself. Then, based upon when it feels like getting around to scheduling it, and however it feels like it, it will call your Lambda function on that, okay. that, that, that integer. So it's sort of like a declarative cause and effect kind of setup. Yeah, except what goes on in there, and there's, there's different types of these blocks. So you have, they break them into a bunch of categories, like buffering blocks, execution blocks, grouping blocks. Uh, and one of the things that you can do with these blocks, almost all of them, different different ones have different options, but like with the action block, you can pass in parameters on the constructor that say, hey, I want to have a maximum amount of parallelism that the action block will, will do. By default with action block, it's one. So you could create an action block. You could post uh, a thousand integers to it, and it's going to use one thread on the thread pool, one task implementation on the thread pool, and call that over and over and over and over again a thousand times. Hmm. If you say max degrees of parallelism two, it's going to create two tasks, and it's going to rotate the, the processing of the, the data on that queue through the two threads. And you can bump this up. What's the default for max parallelism? Uh, well, I think it's it, with the action block, it's just one. Okay. Uh, you know, you can set it to any type of level you want. When, once you start getting up into other blocks, the, the, the default kind of changes. And with the specific blocks, I'm not exactly sure what the, the, the defaults are. But with the action block, it's one. Okay. Which is actually one of the things when you start playing around with this. It's like, I just created an action block, and I posted a thousand things, and it's only using one thread. Right. Yeah. Oops, what's going on? So. Uh, there's actually a lot to learn just with the action block and how to get this stuff worked out. Because, you know, do I create two action blocks and post both of them, rotating through them, or do I do one with a, a different level of max parallelism and have it spread itself across those? That's the preferred way, a naive way, is I want to create multiple action blocks. Mm-hmm. Now, now, action blocks just... They're just a, the TDF has a concept of sources and targets. The action block is a pure target. So right. basically, that's something that's going to have data sent to it by the, the test data flow library mm-hmm. when you post data into it. And so it, it's kind of a terminus. An action block doesn't get you very far. You'll be able to process and, and do some parallelism with it. And actually, you'll be able to do a surprising large amount of it with just action block. And there's other options in there, such as uh, upper bounds on how many messages that you want to allow to be inside of the queue in the action block. So if you want to forcibly not have uh, it holding too much data in memory, too many items, you can say, okay, let's cut this off uh, right there so that, you know, we don't, you know, start uh, using up all the computer's memory or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you've got a couple options with action block with that, just to go and control the amount of threads plus the amount of stuff that might be waiting to be processed. It, I mean, it sounds like everything you want to do, 
you could do an inaction block. Well, what do you need the other blocks for? Well, that's what we'll get into a little bit, because, uh, I mean, the action block is, is, in a sense, it's a terminus. One of the, the big differences, because when I started using this over, like, learning, migrating over from the CCR, is that what, one of my questions, well, what's really the difference here between, like, say, an action block and the next construct that you might use, which they call the buffer block, mm-hmm. which, from definition, doesn't really... Uh, it sounds like, okay, it's going to go on buffer, but I already told you the action block has like a, a queue in it. So mm-hmm. it's, it is buffering things. But the action block gets limited in the sense that, let's say, uh, you know, I want to post, uh, you know, my data type, I said it's an action block event, but it can be any type you make. I post a one, a two, or three, or four. It's always going to call the same lambda function on each item. When you get into a buffer block, you start to be able to have the concepts of linking in the data flow network, which is where this starts to get a bit more powerful because the buffer block is also a source. And the source implementation in the interfaces in that allows you to do linkage to a target. So let's say I create a buffer block of integer. I can then say, let's uh, link that to an action block with the, the link to method inside of the interface. Actually, it's a, a, it's a static and a helper class, but those things. So when you start then posting the buffer block, you can, it'll, it'll route that over to that action block. But I can also say link to another action block and another action block. And basically, it will then route that data to every action block with some caveat. So you can start sending it, in a sense, uh, broadcasting to multiple action blocks. That's the broadcast block. There, Yeah, that's what I wanted to get. There is, there is a broadcast block which does that. The buffer block doesn't exactly work the way I just kind of described it, because when you link to something, there's actually a, a two-phase negotiation between targets and sources. We're passing the messages from one another. So technically, they can almost like like roll back. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at Telerik.com slash Metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I don't mind telling you that I'm a little lost. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting the big picture here, and I feel like we're uh, jumping into details that I'm not prepared for. I don't know okay. if it's just me, um, but let's, let's take it back. Let's roll it back to the, the action block, and in general, what, what the alternative is to using the action block. So, like, if I wasn't going to use the the TDF at all and I just had tasks what to, what does the action block give me that I would have to do by hand with a with a task well if you were doing it with hand by the task you, you're and you want to control the level of parallelism you're going to have to manage how many tasks am I creating to service all these requests you're going to have to create a a queue or a list or whatever it is that all of those tasks 
then compete to pull data out of, as well as the producers putting data in. I see. So you're starting to get yourself in the locks and semaphores and all this kind of stuff, and you know, you're going to get, no matter how hard you try all the time, it always ends so, up with some kind of problem. Okay, so you're but, saying that just because I have a task doesn't mean that um, I can handle a lot of tasks simultaneously. Um, I'm yeah. still, I'm still, if I'm going to spin off like a hundred, a hundred requests come in to, let's just call it a service. Let's say I'm, I have some sort of service I want to parallelize. And I know that they're already parallel, but you know, bear with me here. And I yep. get a hundred requests. I could spin off a hundred tasks and now I don't have any, I'd have to write any, just like if they were threads, I'd have to write some kind of controller to control the number of them that I have like a like a thread pool or that kind of thing. Is this what we're talking about, the sort of the higher level managing lots of tasks concurrently? Well, concurrently and their access to data. Because if you just want to, like, fire and forget threads to handle incoming requests right. off of that, which just do a reply back to, like, the incoming requests across the yeah, network. Yeah, that's no problem. Then, You're right. And that's just, that's fine. That's a big pool. But if I want to then... I've got requests coming in, and I need to put that somewhere inside of my application. Right, I get it. So you, so you have you have a bunch of data that they all need to have access to, and you have to control access to it. And in the in the old days, you would do that with locks. Now, yeah. All right. So, so an action block gives us what then? An action block is just going to give you. It's going to give you the ability to have the TDF control that level of concurrency and make sure that the acts, the action blocks are working independently to whatever level of concurrency that you say. Okay. You want. And oh, let your consumers know. basically post to them without having to worry about, you know, going through like writer reader locks or anything like I that. I get it. So it basically does its own internal synchronization and, you don't have to worry about it. And the buffer block is so that you have a sort of a sequential access when it, sort of having a queue in there uh, in in case there's so many that the task can't handle, that all the tasks can't handle them. I'm, I'm not sure why you, why you would need a queue. Well, well, the difference with the buffer block is, is the linkage. And what you can do with linking is you can, uh, say, if when you say when you link with the link to method, you're going to give it a target, but you can also give it a predicate. A target function. what? A link? What are we uh, linking like here? Like to an action block. Oh, okay. We're going to say the buffer block is a source of incoming items. Mm-hmm. Some threads the task can post to the buffer block new items. Got it. Then the buffer block will control negotiation of passing that data to all the linked items okay. in a concurrent manner that is safe within the, the rules that you're kind of setting up. I see. The parameters there. And it lets you go and target multiple targets, not necessarily in a broadcast. The broadcast block's a little different. We'll talk about that in a second. But the link to function lets you specify a predicate that you can go and say, okay, if the data matches this, give it to this target. And when if you're talking about targets, target, give it to another. and when you're talking about targets, you're talking about any block in the in the TDF, any, any kind block of block that supports the uh, iTarget okay. uh, data block. 
interface. So you really are sort of modularly putting together a process uh, that where things are going to happen in a certain order, but um, uh, but you don't really care about that order. Well, and you don't have to manage you, it. You care about the order. You don't care about how it gets done, what the synchronization is with all Yeah, that. I mean the order of tasks, not the order of blocks. Yeah. yeah. You care about the order of blocks, that's for sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, once you get down to some of the stuff, and this, this is where it derives from, like, TPL a lot, is the synchronization contexts are always handled. So you can say, hey, this action block or this buffer block is always executing on uh, the thread pool. Or, let's say this action block, which might be a terminus to change something on the screen at the end of a net data flow network, always runs on the UI for it. So every step that you're linking through this, the TDF is going to make sure that that's run concurrently and safely. It may be on the same thread, but it could be on completely different threads right. by the time it gets to the end there. But it'll make sure it's on the thread you want because you can specify as part of one of the, one of the parameters and the constructors to those blocks, use this thread, this context, the synchronization context. So, okay. you know, typically, you know, if you're programming WTF, you're all familiar with the begin invoke, dispatcher mm -hmm. begin, mm -hmm. you know, the dispatcher post and all this kind of stuff that you're going to do to synchronize. You don't have to do any of that stuff right. if, when you when you set this up. You just say at the end of my data flow network, I've got an action block and it runs on a UI thread. So I can have a bunch of uh, tasks running that listen to incoming network requests for data, you know, pushing data into the application, mm. they automatically, they just post to the buffer block. Uh, you could then route it through, say, a transform block, which mutates the data into your internal uh, model. And then you just pass that to, say, the action block, which, oh, now we're on the UI thread and we just update the UI. And I've done none of the locking and semaphores and dispatchers and all this kind of stuff and just gone and you know, made my life a whole lot easier. So what's the right once block of T? Well, the right once block of T, the definitions give it as, think of it as like a static, but it is uh, basically something where if you want to publish out to a bunch of uh, other targets a single constant value, but you may not know the value at the start of the at the application. And no matter how many times you post to that block new data, it's going to stay with that first one it got. Hmm. And but it's going to ensure that, you know, anything that's linked to it is going to consistently just get that first value once and only once. Well, actually, it'll continue saying, you keep posting that in there, I've noticed the behavior, it keeps sending the same value. But basically, uh, it, it gives you that ability to get a single value out to these, all these different threats. And it's, it's, its purpose is basically that, you know, I've got, I have, who knows how many things are spun up and running, like, uh, action blocks mm. that need this value. It handles, through the linkages that you set up with the data flow network, who all to send it to and, and making sure they get the right value. Okay. So what are executor blocks? 
Well, executor blocks are just the ones that are con- considered to uh, do uh, processing on data. Okay. They're, they're, so the executor blocks break down into action block, transform block, and transform many block. So we talked about the action block. You're just, just going to say with those uh, apply this lambda function mm. uh, to every piece of data mm-hmm. that it provides. The, the transfer, transform block lets you go and say, okay, it's like the action block, but it, we're going to return a value from that and pass it along in the network. So when you post some data into uh, the network to get processed and it gets routed to a, a transform block, the Lambda gets called, you can then return a value. It can be a different type. So you can do any type of transformation that you want on that data and bring it back. So examples that are that are like if you've got uh, uh, incoming stock information in my, in my domain that's in a particular format from an external vendor, I would say, hey, okay, we just posted this into the buffer block. It's routed to a transform block if it's, say, data from Reuters. Mm. And then, so we do, okay, I'm going to take that, that, that particular vendor's data, transform it into my internal model, and then push it back into the data flow network to go further downstream. So in that sense, I can hook a bunch together of a bunch of listeners through the buffer blocks, through transform blocks, and have automatic concurrency and parallelism and transformation of incoming data in different formats into a standardized format in my app, and I didn't have to worry about much of anything, and I did it in four lines of code. This is very powerful. It's in, it's, in a way, it's stupidly powerful. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing when you really get down and start playing with this, these things to, to see the things that you can do. So we go back to action block. I mean, I just described complete, like, NM uh, publish and subscribe models, mm-hmm. you know, inside of your application that, you know, you didn't have to write. You did it in, like, four lines of code. Right. Yeah. So, and, and it and it scales. It that's the, the beauty of it. It scales and scales like an un, you know, it's one of the things, you know, people started with like WPF. You know, you gotta trust that, you know, declarative things are doing the right thing. This is one of the things you have to get your head around this and let the frameworks take action for you and do because in general they're gonna do a better job for you. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. Must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a member, a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner is Sebastian Werner from Alhambra, California. Congratulations, Sebastian. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we give away stuff every show. And all you got to do to sign up is go to .netrocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button, which is in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, fill out a questionnaire and uh, you'll that's it there's no fee there's no nothing just be a fan we have thousands of fans so and we have lots of stuff to give away and at the end of the year somewhere around december we're going to give away five thousand dollars worth of goodies but we don't know what those goodies are yet yeah that's right we're gonna we're gonna use our uh we're gonna use our powers at the end of the year our purchasing power to, to figure out what to get and also, you know, to figure out what's cool, what's hip. Right. We don't know what's hip right now. Well, and every time we do a parallelism show, that 64-way processor system <laughs> becomes really cool again. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Can you imagine how fast it would render video? 
<laughs> fast about dude. Everything's going to be fast on that machine. I mean, except Outlook, but everything else will be fast on that machine. Oh, did I say that out loud? That's a shame. Well, anyway, if you'd uh, like to get in on it, just uh, go to dotnetrocks.com, f- click on the uh, Get Free Stuff button, and you'll be off to the races. So let's uh, jump back in here to some of the other types of blocks. The joining blocks look interesting to me. What are joining yeah. blocks? Well, let's talk because they're, they're kind of, they grow actually upon the, the batch block kind of stuff too. So let's talk about batch block okay. a little bit. Say batch block allows you, say you're posting a, you know, a bunch of data sequentially into, well, it could be concurrently from different streams, but uh, into, let's say, a buffer block previously. And it's going to apply, you know, a target to each of those independently. The batch block lets you say, okay, I want to process these, you know, two at a time, three at a time, four at a time. So let's say you, where you usually you had previously had a buffer block event, uh, you can, if you change that to a, a batch block event, but say I want to group it by threes, it's going to pass the lambda that you're going to give to that is an array. So every time it gets down a mound of items in the queue, it's going to call your lambda and give you a group of those. Now, Michael, why would I want to group these in blocks of three? I mean, I'm not arguing that you can, but what is the insight? You sort of like, we should group this in blocks of three. Well, I don't, you know, I, I think when you get into the higher constructs, like the join blocks and the batch join blocks is where the the batch block itself becomes most important. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about, like, the join block. The join block says, hey, okay, I've got multiple input streams. So basically you're going to say the framework provides join block and you and you can parameterize it with your generics to two or three items. You have to chain it other ways to get more than that. But basically I can say the batch block's going to, uh, handle two different types of data, mm-hmm. and you could, you could post at any time one of the other types of data. But once it gets an item from each, it's going to give you a tuple passed to your lambda okay. that joins those together. So what you can do with that is like uh, you go, you say, I'm I'm going to start a request from uh, system A and over the internet, and another request from system B different types of data, but I, I can't proceed until I get both. So you could make a join block that when you, the task that is waiting for the response to, you know, request one, post to that, request two, post to that. When that's finally done, it calls your, your uh, method that you provided. And now you've automatically done that type of thing where previously I had to, you know, spin up a thread. I had to keep track that you know, the thread or task was running. This is this is where I started really getting into this, to be honest, is because this was the Silverlight programming model of async and web services. Right. Where it, it was great when I was calling one item in the background and I knew there was just one thing going on. Well, guess what? When you start making complicated systems, I now have like 25 outstanding async calls, the back-end systems. Right. This helps you solve that kind of problem because... You can say, these two, when they're done, done with this. And it only gives you constructs to do two or three at once, but you can chain it together to do arbitrarily large amounts. 
So you can go out and then you don't have to then worry about keeping track of who's currently in flight. You know, did it cancel? Did it get an error? What else do I have to terminate? Mm. Because the join block will do all that for you. Nice. And, and what's even cooler about this too is because the, the TDF fully supports the cancellation token stuff to come from uh, TPL. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if they added this for TDF itself, but a, a particular pattern in a lot of applications is when it starts up, I'm going to go out and make requests from a bunch of different systems. And when it gets together, when, when all those come back, I want to do some coordination of that data. And, and you can run that through a, a, a TDF network and do that. But there's, there's a problem. What if one of them doesn't come back in a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Now I've got, I made like 50 requests, 25 have completed, 25 haven't, 25 may still be out there yeah. and going to complete, but this one failed. Or this, this one didn't finish in the amount of time. Yeah, and I'm not thinking failed. Went, I'm thinking went away. Yeah. It's never going to be back, but you don't know that. Right. <laughs> it's in yeah. the ether. <laughs> yep. So you can, when you create a, uh, a join block, you can pass in, it has parameters like any other block. You can mm-hmm. say, hey, this cancellation token, I want to use this one, pass this to the join block. And you can create it from a cancellation token source that has a timeout. So you can say, hey, if all of these requests don't complete within this amount of time, throw an exception nicely. Terminate all the other tasks for me that are currently still pending as async, mm-hmm. and we'll go on from there, because you can wrap that in with, like, a, a, a continue with method, some, mm-hmm. so when mm-hmm. this fails. And I'm presuming that you don't have to kill everything, that you do have the option of going, I uh, let me know that one's timed out, give me an exception for that, and maybe I'll retry it or try it some other way, or forget about it and function without it. I mean, you've got yeah. 25 completed, 25 incompleted. You decide one of these things is timed out. I hate the idea that I'd kill everything. I'd like to try and recover. Yeah, see, I, I see. this is where I think you're, you're getting this, because now we're progressing into, like, the batched join block. Mm-hmm. Ah. Which now says, and the, the, the significant practical use for this one is, because uh, technically what it does is it says, Okay, let's look in case you got uh, two two incoming streams. You say, I want a batch join block. Now, this is it. We have a batch block and we have a join block. This is a batched join block. Batched join block. Which basically says, uh, upon those incoming streams, join them together, but then give them to me in groups of whatever you specify. Mm Mm-hmm. Which sounds kind of, it took me a while to get my head around this a little bit too, but what you can do with that is you can say, hey, these requests are in flight. I'm either going to get a response or an exception or nothing from either of those, from any of them, but give me the results from all of them all at once in one big batch, either the data or the exception Mm. for each of those. And you can say, do it within this amount of time. So when all that completes, you get an array of uh, batch, individual little batches of two items, either the data or the exception. 
on the thing that happened. So, I mean, try programming that one by yourself. Right, sure. Well, and that speaks to the Better Know Framework thing that I was talking about. Handling exceptions in the Task Parallel Library is kind of daunting. And uh, now here you've got a a construct that just sort of ties it all together with a few lines of code. That's pretty nice. And, and, And that's what's really kind of sweet about PDF that makes these types of problems so simple. Yeah. They really do. Now, they, admittedly, when I started with, like, CCR and doing this, it took months of trying to get my head around this. The PDF, I think, is the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, you know, what are the exact ways of using this? Because it's, to me, it's still kind of alien because it's very functional in a sense. You know, you're describing more what you want done and, right. and letting things kind of let, letting go. Yeah. You know, out to the system to handle these things for you. But it's a beautiful thing once you get it going because thousands of lines of buggy code collapse into nothing, almost. What does the term greedy mean in this context? So, yeah, so greedy is getting into the some of the, the complexities of the message passing between the different sources. Basically, uh, when a source receives a message, say you post data to it and it's a source block, and it sees that there are things it needs to pass to, it starts a negotiation with those downstream blocks. And uh, basically, it, it's like the source offers the data to the target, and it'll keep a list of one-to-many targets it's got to send it. It's going to go down that list and say, first guy on the list, I'm offering you this message. The target has the option of saying, yeah, I don't want that. It's not for me, in which case the source can offer it to the next one. Or it can say, that message is for me. So when the target goes and says, hey, that's for me, the source puts a lock on it. And if something always goes and says, hey, that's for me, but I'm going to maybe decide a little bit later, that's greedy. So <laughs> okay. that gets into some of the gotchas on this thing, because like, if you just link an action block five times to a buffer block and start posting data, it's always going to send it to the first action block. They are greedy by nature. So greedy just means they want all the data that are that's that, that, yeah. that that's coming to if them. If you offer it to me, I'm going to reserve it for me now. Yeah. At the expense of other people not being other other targets not being able to get it. But right. If the problem is with that is either things may fail, or you know I didn't really need that. I want to I want to reject it later on. Right. At which point you uh, you can talk the targets can talk back into the source and say okay I, I really didn't want this. Yeah. Uh, go pass it on to somebody else because I was busy at the time. I queued it up in myself to look at it a little later. Because the greedy versus non-greedy gets into starvation of threads and all this, that kind of stuff in there. Right. You know, you know, are things waiting around on queues of things when, you know, other things could be handling? You know, it's simpler to implement a greedy system that takes everything, but, you know, you go out. If you really want to get some edge cases of, of high, high parallelism, you know, you want to be... You know, changing the model over to not. You greedy. want to be less greedy, right? Less, less greedy. Surfing the web. Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. 
Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. So why would I, if I'm running in a greedy mode, why am I going to want to push something back? Have I now looked at it a bit more and realized, no, I don't, I don't want this packet. It's not something I need to process it and then push it back. Or I just didn't understand enough from the inbound constructors. Yeah, that's a good question, Richard. I don't know if I, I have a definite answer because I haven't programmed. Yeah, because uh, it seems to me the other side itself. of this is it's more of a tuning thing. As the data velocity goes up and you start dealing with sort of thread starvation problems, proper parallel problems, your greediness starts to be an issue. So you turn down the greediness on some of these blocks just yeah, to see if you I, get I better execution. Yeah, I think that's with, with tuning is where you're going to probably want it. Now, some of the, the blocks themselves like action block inherently work in a greedy model. I think some of the other ones go in the non-greedy. So if, if you are seeing starvations or some performance problems, you can kind of switch them around, or you can implement your own implementations of these different blocks and, and change the behavior of that. Because, I mean, when you get down to it, what TDF is, is it's, it's an agent-oriented system with message paths. Can yeah. I create my own blocks? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, you'll derive from any of those methods, I'm uh, sorry, interfaces, uh, you know, uh, iTarget block, iSource block, uh, a combination of both, if you're just going to maybe do some uh, listening and passing it off to somebody else. Yeah. I've implemented ones like uh, stuff that's not in the TDF, which I really wish was in there, was stuff like sliding windows. Hmm. So that, you know, I, I'm, I want... Uh, a sequence of 10 events in the incoming streams, but, you know, slide it one at a time. So you're yeah. giving me the first time you give me one through 10, the second time ele- two through 11, so that I can analyze stuff over time. And you can get complex with that if you start getting into complex event processing systems and training systems and stuff. You know, it's like I want to have a block that I implemented myself that you know, the incoming events with their timestamps are within this period, then give them all to me. So you need to go implement those types of blocks yourself. They're not, not core to the, the fundamentals. And uh, I do have, I have a, I do a lot of, like you do, Carl, I do a lot of connect stuff. Mm. And I've done a number of things. Since you brought it up earlier. I mean, what's the broadcast block? Right. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, but it has a very nice usage that, uh, can be used with it because fundamentally it says, okay, you post one, every item you post into it, it's going to send it to every list, every downstream block in the, in the data flow network. It's going to guarantee that they all get it. It's one of the big jobs that it has. But let's take this one scenario I've had where I was really racking my brain on this. I'm doing a lot of facial recognition stuff with the connect. Oh, nice. And, and I'm, I'm, Connecting it up through libraries like uh, OpenCV and the .NET ports of that, which have mm-hmm. facial recognition algorithms in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you know, to connect throws those things at you like 30 frames per second. That's right. The video. Per- 
So, well, well, guess what? I can't do 30 frames per second on my computer of processing of those fur faces. Yeah. So you get into a producer-consumer problem, Mm -hmm. is producing faster than I can consume. Right. So if you're trying to program that with, uh, let's say, tasks and uh, intermediate queue and you're getting in the locks and then like, okay, if I'm putting something on it and there's something already there, I want to remove whatever's on the list already. Well, the neat scenario you can do with TDF in a couple lines of code is basically like that every time you get an image frame in from the connect, you just post it to a broadcast block. Right. You connect it to one action block whose max level of concurrency is one. You've got a very simple network there. But basically what the broadcast block does, it has a semantic in it such that uh, if someone puts data in me and nobody's currently ready to, to accept the data, I'm going to overwrite whatever's in the pending already that's ready to go out. So it's automatically taking the incoming stuff and then only forwarding the most recent item to the next thing in the network mm. when that's ready. Because okay. it does this negotiation and message passing. Because the, the, all the target blocks let the source blocks out, I'm ready for data or I'm still processing data. Because mm. part of that handshake is, and it, this may get into some of the stuff with greedy and ungreedy too that we talked about before, is, is you know, I, I, I'm too busy right now. Just defer this. You can you can tell a target can tell a source. Wait till later to try to give it. Sure. So an That's action block will do that. And if you hook if you hook the action block up with a max parallelism of one to a, a broadcast block, it's only going to when that action block is ready send that next thing. And it solves a pretty wicked problem there. Yeah, it, and very elegantly. All right. So I I got one more question for you if we're done with that topic. Um, so what's the debugging story? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. Actually, it's it's kind of interesting because they've got full support in uh, Visual Studio 2012, at least with the, the latest revs, for uh, analyzing this stuff. So if you can, you can set breakpoints on... Uh, any of the functions that you have that are callbacks. And when you're in there, you can step in there. You can use the the watches to go in, and you can see how many items are currently in a blocks queue and all those types of things. Mm-hmm. It's pretty flexible with that. But, you know, you know, so with when you're in studio, you can see that stuff. You know, you're still getting a lot of uh, problems with, the currency and multiple things happening at once, and sometimes even though I'm using TDF, it doesn't seem like it's you know executing in the right order. So you're doing again a lot of you know what's the managed thread ID, <laughs> what's the yeah. data, and all that that kind of stuff. So well, it's a classic but, multi-threaded debugging problem. I mean, there doesn't you know constructs get more and more complex, and the debugging becomes more and more impossible. Yeah. The it, it, land it, of the unreproducible results. Uh, yeah, it's it <laughs> well, works see, now, but I don't know why. <laughs> but see, that's one of the things that TDF actually gives you because because you're you're using it to control the concurrency. You actually have a lot less scenarios where you get that you, that I don't know what the heck's going on result <laughs> because two threads stomped on one piece of data. 
Well, right. that doesn't need to happen in PDF. Yeah. Which is just a beautiful thing. Because one thing we haven't talked about at all at this point, too, is, is stuff like uh, uh, using uh, exclusions okay. for scheduling. Because all these different blocks also can be handed in, you know, a task scheduler object, mm-hmm. which basically is telling it not necessarily only what thread to execute on when it goes to process things, but there, there's a specific class in the library. There's a class called Concurrent Exclusive Scheduler Pair. Yeah, <laughs> rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, I know. Uh, but what that one does is, it, it's not really a block per se, it's really, a, it, it, it gives you two items. It gives you uh, a pair, and so it's a tuple. And one item is the concurrent task scheduler, and the other is the exclusive task scheduler. So what that does then is you can pass those two different schedulers into different blocks that you put together to execute on data. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are in the concurrent scheduler will be allowed to run all at the same time, fight with each other based upon the rules that you set up in TDF and multi-threading and all that stuff. But they will also be guaranteed that they will not ever be executing when a block is executing on the exclusive scheduler. Hmm. So you can directly implement just by passing parameters data, these objects in on your constructors of your blocks, mutual exclusion scenarios, uh, reader, writer locks, and, and those types of things without having to uh, like go through any of those types of hassle, too, just by using that scheduler construct. Just one more thing before we go, and this might be a, a, a TPL question, I'm not sure. Is it possible to create too many tasks? I mean, one of the, seems to me one of the challenges of multi-threaded programming is knowing how, uh, you know, when too many threads is too many threads. And I know that a task isn't necessarily a thread, but, but, um, and, and it's supposed to be managed, but how can, is it possible to over design a system that shouldn't be as parallel as it is? And, and does a task parallel library just insulate you from that magically? Or do you still have to take some care into, in, into how often and when, and why you create tasks. Yeah, well, I mean, TDF has taken away creating tasks for you. It's taking that on itself. It gives you those constructs that you can then say, I want to have these maximum levels of concurrency. So you can put bounds on that, and then you can compile time change those, run time change those. So it's giving you a lot more ability to manage that kind of process. I think you still have to worry about all that, but you know, at least you're 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 being able to really put a lot more effective control around that. Because I mean, I, I've seen stuff. I I built systems myself where I didn't know, you know, I was getting this many messages in, or I wasn't until like three months into production, and then all of a sudden it got slammed. And guess what? The CPU just won 100 percent on every core for hours. Mm. Well, and everything starts getting blocked. Well, that's something, because I just had a free-flowing, just throw them out on a thread pool. Well, well with, with TDF, you can control that a little better with your max levels of concurrency stuff that you can kind of put right in there yeah. and change it easily if, if you want to, just by changing the data setup for the, the networks. It's pretty cool. 
Well, uh, I think we're just running over a little bit, but uh, so I, I just want to say thanks very much, Michael. It's been a great uh, hour talking to you, and this is this is great stuff, and I'm thoroughly impressed. Yeah, I think you know, if we do DNR TV like the show did, it, it's really neat when you start to see this stuff. It, I mean, it's kind of abstract to talk about. Like, yeah, I agree. Kind of worried about giving this talk, and it's not even slides or anything like that because it's right. like. What the, you know? What the what the heck is he talking about? Well, we'll definitely do it on DNR TV. Let's uh, we'll we'll hook to, we'll hook up and get that going. Yeah, and then I can try have all these patterns coded up and things like that to, to, for demonstration. Sounds great. I think it would just be great for community to understand because you know TDF is one of those things, and a lot of people just don't know. Right. That's even kind of out there and, and what it can do for them. And it certainly does take a, it, t- it takes a complex problem and simplifies it, which is always good. Thank you, Michael Height, for joining us this hour. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 